we lift up our heads and you, the King of glory, may come in. Jesus, we long for you and we look to you. Would you open our eyes to just the, the depth and the riches of your word now? God, I pray for Matt as he would just be full of your word, God. Be free to speak it, Lord. Boldly and clearly as it should be. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we long to learn from you. So come and teach us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. morning. Check, check, one, two. Pete's getting it dialed in. Sounding pretty good from up here, Pete. Magic ears. Okay, keep going. Uh, Today we're in Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21. If you um, have a copy of God's Word that you brought with you, pull it out now. If you're sitting next to somebody who has one, snuggle up. If you need one, we've got um, blue covered copies of God's Word. Um, Nobody needs to hear from me. This morning, we need to hear from the Lord. I, uh, a buddy of mine, I saw a tweet of his this morning, which said, Lord, may the sermon the people hear this morning be better than the one I'm about to preach. And I think the only way that can happen is when we have God's word in our sights, and in our hearts, in our minds. We're in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be going through the entire chapter, but let's start by um, standing And I'm going to read this passage, verses 1 through 11. Here's God's word for us this morning. Now when Jesus and the disciples drew near to Jerusalem and came to the town of Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them. And bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before them and those that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, um, in the words of the old prayer, what we know not, teach us. And what we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us in the image of your son in whose name we pray. 
Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We're going through the book of Matthew, as you know, kind of a chapter at a time, taking it in these big chunks. And uh, today, there's, we're kind of entering a, a new season, a new section that is marked by opposition. This is where we've been seeing it. Little skirmishes have been happening. Jesus, some of these religious leaders at each other. This is where we enter the final rounds of the skirmish. We're seeing a lot of, of conflict, confrontation with the religious authorities. Today's text, this chapter, comes in three sections for you. Uno, dos, tres. My kids know more Spanish than I do. The first section is verses 1 through 11. And it shows us that Jesus is God's sort of king. The second section is verses 12 through 17. You can see it right there in your Bibles. And that section shows us that Jesus is God's sort of priest. Then there's a little story, verses 18 through 22, which we're going to call the mystery section right now, okay? That one's a little crazy. The whole book of Matthew, Jesus is helping people, healing people, making things well. He's going to curse a tree. And then he's going to talk about how to move a mountain. We're calling it the mystery section right now. The third section is verses 23 through 46. And it's going to show us that Jesus is God's sort of prophet. Now, I'm using the word sort of, meaning um, a group of things that share characteristics, not, you know, somewhat. Like, did your mom say it was okay to eat candy? Sort of. Not like that. God's sort of king. Let's start with this. Jesus is God's sort of king. This is the passage we just read. And precisely what type of king, what sort of king is that, you ask? Let's look at our text for these answers. First, Here it is. He's a king of unexpected humility. Jesus is a king of unexpected humility. This is what I'm seeing from the donkey riding in in verse 7. Question, um, how did you you get to church today? How did you get to church today? Because uh, for decades, our state has built our economy on this sentence. Um, I can tell a lot about you by your form of transportation, right? Right? I could tell a lot about you about your form of transportation. If you saw my 2004 Honda Odyssey van with car seats and a thin layer of cheddar goldfish, <laughs> kind of, you could tell a lot about me, couldn't you? And if, if you were one of seven people crammed into uh, your friend's car, I might be able to tell that you're a college student this morning. And if I saw your convertible red um, sports coupe Audi, I might be able to tell you're having a midlife crisis. <laughs> and if you saw my um, seafoam green um, Toyota Prius, then you should keep your guesses to yourself about me, okay? <laughs> okay, you can tell a lot about a person by what... Their transportation is, and look what Jesus' transportation is saying. Gentleness and humility. He's not on a white horse coming to judge. Look at verse 2. Jesus says to his disciples, you're going to find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. This might be the gentlest thing I can possibly imagine. How many of these is Jesus riding? It's not like he's standing on top of like both of these things riding, like skiing into Jerusalem, okay? 
What's he writing? He's writing on one, right? Just what a picture of kindness. Jesus is like, I'm going to be riding the little, the little guy. Bring the mom too. What a kind savior we have. How gentle. So hear this. This Jesus, God's king, he's a king of unexpected humility. Second, he is a king with an unflinching rebuke. Jesus combines both of these things. He's gentle, he's humble, and he has got a rebuke. I'm getting this from this historical precedent. Let me show you what I mean. Think about other times when kings have entered Jerusalem to rule. Okay? The one I'm thinking of right here, the clearest parallel is the story of Solomon. Remember the coronation of Solomon? Neil taught us so well about this in his um, message when we were going through the kings. If you haven't heard that, if you weren't here for Neil talking about Jesus as the great king, download it off the website. It was fantastic. I've listened to it three times. Okay, this story, let me just tell you the story of, of Solomon entering Jerusalem. This story happens way after Jesus, sorry, way after David is done killing Goliath. At this point in David's life, he's old. He's cold. He can't get warm. He's near the very end of his life. He's hung up his slingshot. He's old. He's weak. He's about to die. And he had appointed Solomon to be the successor. But it's not looking good. There's another son of his that's conspiring. This one of his sons, Adonijah, was scheming to become the king. Adonijah had cut a deal with the chief priest. He had cut a deal with the ruler of the army. And as soon as David died, they were going to make Adonijah the king. And just at that moment, David abdicated the throne. Did you know that? That's how his reign ended. He gave up the throne. He didn't die and then to, for the change because he knew as soon as he died, this little conspiracy would happen. So he cut it short. He abdicated the throne and he gave up his rights, he gave up his power, to sound like somebody we know. And he, and he made Solomon the great king. This is 1 Kings 1, verses 38 through 40. Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites, why did I pick this passage? And the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's donkey. And they brought him to Gihon. And there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed, anointed, anointed one is Messiah, is Christ. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy. So right here in our text, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, retraces the exact steps that Solomon, whose name means peace, He retraces Solomon's steps with a crowd announcing that the throne of David was continuing. Take that, you fake king. Take that, fake king Adonijah. And so, take that, fake king Herod. Why are the leaders trying to hush all of this cheering? It's not because they're party poopers. It's not because they don't like kids. It's because Jesus showing up on a donkey means this. Here comes the real king. Here comes the real prince of peace. Here comes Solomon, but better than Solomon. Here comes the greater Jedediah, the one truly loved by the Lord. Yeah, he's like Solomon, but Matthew 12, 42 told us something greater than Solomon is here. But the crowds miss it. 
Look at verses 10 and 11 in our passage. The whole city is stirred up, and they ask, who is this? Now, Matthew has been, for our whole book, he's been really drawing our attention to the difference between two groups of people, the crowds and the disciples. The crowds and the disciples. And so the crowds say, the question is, the city asks, who is this? And the crowds say, what do they say? He's a prophet. Ah, ah, kinda. They miss it there. They give an incomplete answer. It's not so much a wrong answer as much as it is incomplete. Remember, Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, he asked, who did the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The crowds thought Jesus was a prophet. Again, their answer is not so much wrong as it is inadequate. This is the answer they should have given, Matthew 16. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. So Jesus is God's sort of king. He's a king of unexpected humility. He's a king with an unflinching rebuke. He's God's sort of king. Second section of our, of our chapter is verses 12 through 17. And here we see Jesus is God's sort of priest. God, he's God's sort of priest. And what does that mean? Look at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple, the temple courts, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Here's what this means. Jesus is God's sort of priest. He's a priest driven by holiness. He's a priest driven by holiness. You've got to picture this scene, okay? Jerusalem is filled for the Passover. Crammed. It's not that big of a city. Um, I was with a Rod and a group of people from the church over the summer, and one of the things you start to figure out um, compared to what my brain thought, Jerusalem's small. It's not, it's like, it's all together. Tiny. And to picture all of these God-fearing Jews and Gentiles that were um, um, trying to follow the one true God crammed into the city is unbelievable. The outer court of the temple is called the court of the Gentiles. And when Jesus walked in, he found it had been overrun by a massive flea market. Okay? It's a religious Comic-Con. The temple workers were selling sacrificial animals. Only spotless animals could be offered as a sacrifice, right? But who gets to determine if they're spotless? The guys selling spotless animals. Do you see how unfair that is? One of my dad's phrases he would say to me once in a while is like, never ask a barber if you need a haircut. Why? Because the answer is, yeah, you need a haircut. I'll give it to you right now, $15. Notice notice the other things. This is... Notice the other people that are there, money changers. Did your eyes skip over that little word? Money changers. What is that? They were changing your money into temple money. So it's like Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) Right? It's like temple tokens. Give us your money. Hey, money changers. Hey, don't worry. We can take care of it. Bring us your money. We don't even... Yeah, here. Well, that's worth this much. And we're laughing about that, but you should just know that that's going to be about the last joke for the next 20 minutes. Because when you look at the text, you're going to see this. Jesus was furious. 
Malachi 3 prophesied, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. What made Jesus so angry? Was it seeing this greed? Was it their dishonesty? Sure, but he's seen greed and dishonesty before. Why does he pick this moment to flip out? Here's why. In the very place that God had determined to reveal himself, in the very place where he said his name would dwell forever, in the exact same place that Isaiah stood and saw the Lord seated on a throne and smoke and the train of his robe filled the temple and angels had to cover their face. In that place, these fraudulent priests, were, they were toying with holiness. They were amusing themselves with the things that God held sacred and special, not Jesus. He's God's sort of priest. He's a priest driven by holiness. Next, verse 13. Jesus is a priest anchored on scripture. He's driven by holiness. He's anchored on scripture. Here's verse 13. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, it's not that these fraudulent priests hated scripture. They were okay with scripture. They did all sorts of scripture-based stuff. But they took the scripture and they used it like a trampoline. They bounced right off of it and then did their own thing. And by doing this, they were despising the authority of Scripture, not Jesus. Jesus is anchored on Scripture. He's not using it like a trampoline to bounce on. Rather, for Christ, the Scripture is an ocean that he swims in. Why does Crossroads provide Bibles for you? Why do preachers here insist that you look at a Bible? It's because we want to be like Jesus. We want to point you to God's word. So look at the text and see three different places where Jesus points them to the Old Testament and presses them with what the Bible teaches. First, he points to Isaiah 56 verse 7 and explains, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Matthew's writing to Jewish people. So they know how that little sentence ends. Mark's writing to the Romans. So he has to add the way the sentence ends. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, is the way that little part ends. Here, in the court of the Gentiles, the fraudulent priests had ignored scripture. Next, Jesus takes that little phrase, den of robbers, from Jeremiah 7, and applies it to them. I'm going to save the larger quote of that for later in the message. It's stunning. Finally, when the fraudulent priests complain about the children that are going to be making all of this noise, Jesus says these words, have you guys even read Psalm 8? I'm paraphrasing, of course, but we're going to talk about that part in a moment. Here's my point. Jesus anchored his authority on the words of Scripture. Question, what about us? When we speak about the most important things in life, what do we appeal to for our authority? In our worship services, when we, when we counsel each other, when we preach, where do we point people to 
as the source of our authority. God forgive us for the foolish advice that believers give each other or the, the hollow encouragement that we post on each other's Facebook walls. We point to pathetic inspirational quotes. We point to partisan politic. We point to sappy sentimental stories. Listen, 1 Peter 4.11 says, let him who speaks speak the oracles of God. Let's lose, Oprah says this, Dr. Phil says that, Dave Ramsey says this. Let's lose, John Piper says this. Let's lose, Rod says, Neil says. Let's lose, for sure, I heard Westy say this. Grab a hold of this. The Bible says. The Bible says. And if you don't know what the Bible says, that's not a permanent problem. Learn. Anchor yourself to the authority of God's word. Point hurting people around you. Point your own heart to the authority of God's word. That's what Jesus did. He's God's sort of priest. He's a priest driven by holiness. He's a priest anchored to the authority of Scripture. And thirdly, he's a priest who loves the hurting and the outsider. Verse 14, you almost skip over this if you just read the chapter. Verse 14 says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Jesus loves the hurting. We talked about the day that Solomon entered Jerusalem to be king. Let's talk about another one. Let's talk about the day that David entered Jerusalem to become its king. Do you know this story? This is in 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 through 10. The town was being held by the Jebusites. Um, and David and his men, I'm just, I'll just read it for you. David and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to the David, you will not come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off. Here's what they're basically saying. We think your kingship is pretty pathetic. In fact, we're going to take a break. And uh, we're going to take, um, our, the, the watchtower is going to be um, watched by a blind guy. And the person in charge of the main gate there, we're going to put the crippled guy in charge there. And you still won't be able to conquer our city. That was what they were saying. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft. So David kind of knew a little bit how the city worked. There was like a tunnel for the water to get in. So he sent some guys up the tunnel. It's cool. (laughs) Go up the water shaft and attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house, which meant that Jebusites wouldn't serve on David's court. David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Now in this story, those fraudulent priests are the Jebusites. They think they're unconquerable, and we're going to see how that's going to go in a bit. Jesus, the son of David, but David's Lord, enters Jerusalem. He shows up and he loves the hurting. He loves them and he heals them. Because it's the guy with no eyes who can see that Jesus is the answer to his need. He's not really blind. It's the girl without legs who decides that Jesus is the way that she wants to walk and comes to him. She's not really lame. 
These hurting people are loved by Jesus and they get healed. Here's the, the real blind people. It's the fraudulent priests that can't see that God just entered his temple. Blind. Here's the real lame people. It's the ones who stubbornly stay frozen in place instead of running to the only thing that can save them. These are the blind people, the lame people that should not come into the house. And they're about to be conquered by David's son, Jesus, born in Bethlehem. They're about to be conquered by David's Lord, Jesus, who's going to be sacrificed in Jerusalem. Jesus is God's sort of priest who loves the hurting and the outsider, we said. These fraudulent priests despise the outsider. They filled the court of the Gentiles with this vanity fair. Remember, Jesus was quoting Isaiah 56. This house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The temple was a missions headquarters, guys. The temple was a missions headquarters. Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, said in Romans 15, the reason why the Jewish nation received God's word was actually so that they may praise God among the Gentiles. Romans 15, 9. Why even, have you thought about this? Why even build a court of the Gentiles? Why would you even have one? It was so that Gentiles could hear about God and come to know him. Like Cornelius did in Acts 10. How else, remember the, the woman who said that even the dogs could eat the crumbs that fell from the children's table. How could The court of the Gentiles is one of the ways that happened. But now, here's why Jesus is furious. When outsiders came, they saw God's people ignoring his holiness, ignoring his word, and trying to make themselves a quick buck. Question. What about us? Let's start start with us. Ephesians 2.19 says that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus is our cornerstone and we're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We're a temple. If the Lord came to our church, what would he see? When outsiders come into our gatherings, what do they see? Do they hear God's salvation being proclaimed and celebrated and received and rejoiced in? Or do outsiders get buried in a sea of insider trading, in a sea of insider lingo, insider terms, insider relationships? Do we long to proclaim the unsearchable riches of God to the lost? Or are we comfortable with our little church gig? Let's get personal for a minute because where's the temple now? It's not just us, it's also you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 that you are God's temple, that we need to glorify God in our body and spirit which belong to the Lord. Do you make room for the hurting? Do you have space in your life for the outsider? The section ends illustrating this point. Here's verse 15 and forward. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. What type of things did Jesus do? Wonderful things that he did. And the children crying out, they're shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. They said to him, do you hear these children are saying? Jesus said to them, 
Yeah. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And it ends with this judgment, verse 17. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. He left. Jesus left the temple. Ichabod, the glory has departed. He left. And is there any better picture for churches in America than that judgment? Jesus has left. Everyone thinks, thank God this would never happen in our church, but examine our, let's examine ourselves. Has it already happened? Where is our prayer? I was so encouraged to see the season that we took in our church, that we made some space to pray for the sanctity of life Sunday and for justice issues. Is that something that bugs us? Does that make us uncomfortable? This house should be a house of prayer. Where is our prayer? Where is our power, our spiritual power? Look at this text and you'll see what happens when Jesus comes. He brings salvation to the needy. He brings blessing to the children. Look at the text. You'll see what happens when Jesus cleanses. The hurting come and are healed. The outsider comes and is saved. The children learn to love Jesus. The church where Jesus was alive and healing and active and powerful, you could build a moat around that church and people would fight to get in. Hurting people would. And look at the way, listen to the children in the story. Do our children cry out, save me Jesus? Far too often in churches in our country, in churches in western Michigan, in our church, this is precisely what's not happening. Why? Because the church needs to be cleansed. Cleansed by a priest driven by holiness. Cleansed by a priest anchored in scripture. And cleansed by a priest with a heart for the hurting and the outsider. Cleansed by God's sort of priest. That brings us to the third section of our text. We've seen that Jesus is God's sort of king. He's God's sort of priest. And now we're going to see that Jesus is God's sort of prophet. Skip down to verse 23 for now. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. So this is the next day. He walks back in. Now he's going to do some teaching. And they said, hey, by by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Okay. They're questioning his authority. Do you represent God? They want to know, or they're asking at least. Can you really speak for him? Are you a genuine prophet? Here's the first point for our section. Jesus is God's sort of priest. He's a prophet with an authoritative baptism. Listen to this answer that he gives. Verse 24, follow along. Jesus answered them, I'll ask you a question. If you tell me the answer, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man, from human origin? They discussed it among themselves, saying, oh, if we say from heaven, he's going to say to us, why didn't you believe? If we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd. The New Living Translation says, we'll be mobbed. For they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered, we do not know. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
And I've always pictured Jesus as doing this like a trick question. Like this is sort of like, what's the square root of a billion? You don't know. I'm not going to tell you my answer either. But he's not doing that. He's actually answering their question directly. You ask me where I got my authority? Here. It's from my baptism. Jesus is just straight answering their question. Jesus has an authoritative baptism. Remember what Neil taught us again in that sermon on Matthew 3. Remember what the Father said at Christ's baptism. This is my son. Quoting Psalm 2, the king. This is my son, whom I love, which is echoing what God said to Abraham about his son. Take your only son whom you love. And sacrifice him. So Jesus is going to be a king and a sacrifice. With whom I am well pleased, God says, quoting Isaiah 42 about the suffering servant who says, In his teaching, all the nations will put their hope. He's a king, he's a priest, he's a prophet in that little sentence as well. Jesus has an authoritative baptism. Next, you're going to see this next story, verses 28 through 32. Jesus shows us he's a prophet with authoritative obedience. Kids are going to love this one. Ready, guys? One, two, three. A lot of kids in here. Kids' story time. What do you think? A dad's got two boys. He goes to the first boy and says, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And that son says, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went out. He went to son number two and said the same thing. And that son said, I go, sir. And then he didn't go. Which of these two did the will of his father? And they said, the priest said, the first. This this is the sting in Jesus' tail. The Pharisees are worse than both of these boys, okay? They didn't believe John to begin with. They didn't change their minds. The parable doesn't even mention that kid. Oh, by the way, kid number three. There's a third brother who said, I hate you. I hate your dumb vineyard. I'm not going to go. And then he stayed home and played video games, okay? Well, that's the Pharisees' response. It might win a consistency award. It might win an authenticity badge. But it's got no authority to it. It's given up all pretense to authority. Continuing on verses 31 and 32. Which of these two did the will of the Father? They said, the first, the boy who changed his mind. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. You didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The tax collectors and the prostitutes changed their minds. They repented. They turned their feet, metanoia, and went a different direction. They joined the way of righteousness. Here's the other thing. There's, there's brother number four in the story that doesn't get mentioned either. All right, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the brother who was sent to go work by his father in the vineyard. He said, I go, sir, and then he did it. Jesus went. He humbled himself and became nothing. 
I'm getting ahead of myself here. Here's the point again. Jesus is a prophet with authoritative obedience. Here's the last section of our text, verses 33 through 40. Jesus says, okay, you didn't like that story. Try this one. There's a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it, built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get the fruit. The tenants took the servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. So the guy who owns the vineyard sent other servants, more servants this time. The tenants did the exact same thing to them. Finally, the guy who owns the vineyard sent his son to them saying, they're going to respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, here is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. And they took the son and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do to these tenants? Here's our point of this passage. Jesus is a prophet with authoritative sonship. He's got an authoritative baptism. He's got an authoritative obedience. And he's got an authoritative sonship. Jesus is not a tenant. He's not a servant. He is the son. Where did he get his authority? They asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Here's his answer. My dad. My Abba father is the master of the whole house. The father runs the vineyard. Psalm 80 verse 8 said, The father brought a vine out of Egypt and drove the nations out and planted it. Isaiah 5 says that God planted a vineyard and it produced fruits. What fruits did it produce? What fruits did the tax collectors and the prostitutes produce in verse 32? They believed. That's the fruit of the, of the vineyard. Jesus has referenced this when he talked about Jeremiah 7. I said I wanted to read it to you. Let me, here it is. Jeremiah 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Stand in that temple gate and pro- proclaim there this word. Say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, you go see what I did there because of the evil of my people Israel, okay? It's hard if you don't know your Old Testament well. I've learned a lot about the Old Testament by coming to this church and through Rod's teaching, and it's really helped me. Shiloh, you might remember, is where Eli and the Ark of the Covenant were stationed until the wicked priests and the wickedness of their people compelled God to let his ark fall into the Philistine hands. Do you remember that story? The ark falls into the Philistine hands and they put their, their idol next to it and it falls down. That's a great one. Shiloh is the place where the wickedness of the people compelled God 
to allow his ark to be captured by the Philistines. Jeremiah says in 687 BC, the wickedness of the people and the wickedness of the priests compel God to let the temple fall into the hands of the Babylonians. And now Jesus is saying, the wickedness of these priests, the wickedness of this people compel God to let his temple fall into Roman hands. Let me show you how Jesus references this in our passage in Matthew. Jesus ends his story by asking, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do to these tenants? And they answered him, the religious leaders answered him and said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out lease, he'll lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. That's a really good answer. How do you not understand that he's talking about you? Jesus said to them, have you never even read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. I, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Hey, now, now's a decent time for us to talk about our mystery section that we skipped. For the sake of time this morning, I haven't gone over it carefully. I won't be able to go over it carefully. Please go over it this week. Let me just give you a couple little hints on it. Tie the, the passages around it into it. Read it in context. Wicked people are not giving fruit to the vineyard owner at the time of harvest. Fruitless things are being condemned. And please notice Jesus does not say faith moves mountains. He doesn't say that. We say that. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, he's he's not teaching a class in rearranging topography. He's not giving you a lecture in moving the mountains in your life. That's not it. He says, say to this mountain. Clue, what's the only possible mountain he could mean? What's on top of that mountain? And so what is he talking about? We've got a church full of Bible scholars in here. Think over what I say. The Lord will give you understanding in everything Paul said to Timothy. Enjoy getting the juice out of that one yourself. Back to verse 44. The one who falls on this stone, Jesus said, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was talking about them. They're the wicked tenants. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the crowds held him to be a prophet. So now in in closing, let's apply this passage to our lives. This passage calls us to three basic things. First, it calls us to be ruled by God's king. We have to be ruled by God's king. We have to recognize his rule and his reign in our lives now because there's a significant difference between his rule now and his king dominion, kingdom dominion when he returns. This time he's come on a donkey. He will come on a horse to judge. And we are in a season, a brief season. 2,000 years doesn't seem brief. 
because we can't get eternity into our minds. It is a vapor. We are in a brief season where salvation is available. Be ruled by God's king. Our king rides a donkey. He displays unexpected humility. Hear his unflinching rebuke of our fake kings and receive him. Secondly, this passage calls us, be cleansed by God's priest. Be cleansed by God's priest. He's he's driven by holiness. He's anchored in scripture. Recognize that his cleansing, it doesn't steal your joy. His cleansing leads you into the unfathomable joy that you can't even begin to contemplate. The joy that your heart was created to experience. Are you hurting? Are you, do you feel like you're on the outside? God's priest is for you. Ask him to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And third, be convicted by God's prophet. His authority needs to rule in our lives. His obedience gives him authority, but his obedience gives us hope. We're surrounded by disappointing people. I was driving my boys to school this week and I had sports radio on. And, you know, here's, you know, the theme of the week is that athletes that we looked up to have been lying to us. Just a great little opportunity for my son to hear people just devastated by the fact that when we put our aspirations in a person, they disappoint us. When we trust that person, they let us down. When we think this, following this person, wearing this jersey, I can identify with something great, and then to find out that it's not great, just to listen to the people deeply disappointed this week. And then to remember, oh, there is someone who will never let you down. There is someone who the closer you get to them, the better it is, the cleaner he is, the stronger he is, the more able to save he is. Be convicted by him. Who gave those people their authority? Why were we looking to them for our inspiration in the first place? Only one person has ever lived an obedient life, a perfect life, and he offers his righteousness to us. Not a pathetic jersey. He offers us garments of holiness. We can be clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers his sonship to us that we might be called the sons of God. Will we claim him as our cornerstone? Will we build, have our lives built according to his ways? Will we let him crush us to pieces so that ultimately we may, we may be made whole? Or are we going to stubbornly stand waiting for him to fall on us? That will happen. That will be cataclysmic. He will ultimately judge the world. You can't miss that from this passage. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his son. And he will reign forever. Let's pray. Our gracious and great Lord Jesus, you amaze us. We want to be like you, but we confess that we've failed. 
And what we need, Lord, is not a pep talk or instructions. We need more than an example. We need more than teaching. We need everything that you came to be. We need to be ruled by you. Great. We need to be ruled by you, great king of the nations. Who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. We need to be cleansed by you, great high priest. Recognize the sin and our need inside of you. God, we have regret like crazy. Help us not just to be content with feeling regret, but instead to take that and run to the cross to receive your cleansing. We need to hear your warnings, prophet who speaks God's word to us. You do more than speak God's word to us. You are the word. All things were made through you. And without you, nothing's been made. Help us to recognize that in you is life. Your life is the light of men. In your name we pray, Jesus.